Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The habitat. The hunting. And of course, your favorite bird dogs. As the calendar moves from October to November, quail and pheasant hunting seasons in the southern Great Plains are starting to open up. In fact, Texas and Nebraska's upland seasons opened over the weekend, and Kansas and Oklahoma are just a couple weeks out on November 12th. During today's episode of On the Wing Podcast, I'm joined by three members of the Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever employee team who live in the heart of the Great Plains for a conversation about their state's upland forecast. We'll also highlight a few of our organization's upcoming events in these states and uh, have a little fun talking birds and bird dogs along the way. Uh, joining me for this episode of On the Wing Podcast, Kelsey Werman, Nebraska State Coordinator, Dustin McNabb, our Regional Representative for Texas, and Michael Coleman, a Conservation Coordinator in Kansas's Red Hills. Thank you all for joining me. Uh, let's kick it off with Kelsey. Uh, Kelsey, the State Coordinator for Nebraska I'm guessing you've been you've been on board for like 15 years or thereabouts, yeah, right, Kelsey? Yeah, going on 16. It'll be 16 in January. Congratulations! That's a good run. Yeah, yeah, it's it's been good. I love it. So tell us a little bit about your background, because um, um, you've had a couple of different roles with the organization. Where'd you grow up, and, and what do you do for the organization? Yeah, sure. Um, so I am actually from Southeast Nebraska. Um, we. We uh, grew up south of Fairbury, down by the Kansas state line. Um, my parents farm and ranch down there. And then I went to school at UNL for fisheries and wildlife. Uh, worked for the Nebraska Game and Parks Commission for a couple um, temporary positions doing what was CRP map back then. It's um, changed to open fields and waters. Um, it's the state's walk-in access program. Um, did that for a little while and then started as the Farm Bill biologist in West Central Nebraska um, with Pheasants Forever. And then I uh, got married, moved to South Central Nebraska, and here I am. <laughs> and I've, I've been the state coordinator for eight years now. And what's a state coordinator do? So um, we oversee the biologist program. We work uh, with our partners um, I mentioned the Nebraska Game and Parks Commission. They're a strong partner. Uh, the Natural Resources Conservation Service and Farm Service Agency, um, other great partners here in Nebraska. We we work together to create habitat programs. Um, we work with the uh, Farm Bill Biologist Program. We have a little over 30 biologists here in the state, and they all function a little bit differently. And so. Um, that's that's probably our strongest suit in the state is um, just working with our partners, providing that non uh, nonprofit niche. Um, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of the partners we work with, they they're tied to federal funds or state funds. And so they can't work as flexible as we can. Um, so that's really where we come in is is just being the problem solvers for the state and trying to create new things quickly. So I would say that in a nutshell, that's kind of what we do. Yeah, we, we have a unique um, group of people for this particular podcast with a state coordinator, a regional representative, and a um, conservation coordinator in, in Michael who works directly with landowners. So it's, it's sort of the different tiered structure of our organization with the state coordinator really working with partners, the regional representative working with our chapters to raise money and spend money, and then conservation coordinator who works directly with landowners. So that's going to be an interesting perspective as we talk about um, habitat and, and uh, access and uh, and birds along the way for this conversation. Uh, let's move to uh, Texas and our regional representative for Texas, Dustin McNabb. Tell us a little bit about your background, Dustin. Well, I... Uh... You know, like a lot of us in the organization grew up uh, hunting and fishing, um, which 
you know, lead, led to a love of bird dogs and a love of birds and uh, um, was actually a, uh, a volunteer with the organization before I ever took, uh, took employment with them. I was a, a, a officer with our local chapter here in Lubbock and uh, one of the founding members of that, that group. And now I get to work with them in a different capacity. Um, I grew up not far from here, about 45 miles in a, a tiny little town called Amherst. And uh, that's still where my, my hunting grounds are today. So uh, go back and see my family and, and take to the fields during the their fall season. So um, married uh, married my wife back in 02. She lives here in Lubbock, so that's where we, we set up shop and <laughs> have two wonderful kids. And uh, my son is just now to the point where he can get out in the field with us. And uh, he, he's really got bit by the sandhill crane bug right now. So <laughs> but, uh, we're falling into the falling into the quail. Uh, and he's he's looking forward to getting his bird dog out this year and uh, learning the ropes. So uh, that's that's the first time that phrase has ever been said on this podcast. Been hey. bit by the sandhill crane bug. I, that's I've right. been bit by that bug too. So do you go by flying fillet, ribeye of the sky? What's your uh, uh, what's what's your phrase for sandhill? I'm I'm a ribeye man myself, so it's always been the ribeye in the sky. But I'll tell you what, we uh, we didn't learn that lesson until till later on. And, and since we figured out they're actually pretty good eating, we've really stuck with them. And, uh, uh, you know, I've got a, a nephew who's got a, a, a guide business that that's what he does. And he's mm. uh, he's been a big proponent of quail forever. He donates uh, hunts to the national auction and things like that. So... I try to sneak in an extra hunt with him whenever I can <laughs> uh, and, and stock that freezer up. So, yeah, a lot of fun, a lot of fun. But, uh, you know, getting out, uh, you know, whenever you can catch a crane flying by while you're out quail hunting is really fun. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what kind of shot do you use for a, a, a hunt that's a crane quail mixed bag? I'll tell you what, you wouldn't believe it, but on that day, it was just a two and three quarter inch, uh, you know, seven shot that brought that crane down. So oh, I got wow. a great picture of it. I'll have to find, but uh, my nephew shot that early on in the in the hunt, and instead of leaving the bird where we could get it when we come back through, he said, "Huh, put it in a bag." And so that crane's <laughs> hanging out of both sides of that bag, and just man, it was uh, it was one of the best hunts we've ever had. It was fun. <laughs> So I'm assuming though, normally when you're crane hunting, you're setting up early. And um, oh, yeah. yeah, do you use decoys crane hunting? Uh, you know he does now since it's a profession. But growing up when we hunted them, you just buried down in a CRP field and covered up with that grass and had a couple of tumbleweeds out in front of you, mm. um, and that that was all you needed. Uh, but now things have changed. So yeah, he's got a full decoy set up and. Uh, We've we've got a frames that we hunt out of, and every now and then, if you get adventurous, you get in a, a ground blind, so a lay down, and uh, but yeah, definitely get out there early. Um, mm-hmm. But and it's fast and furious action if you get in the right spot. So, and we we already referenced the the taste. Um, crane is incredibly good to eat. Um, yes, sir. known as ribeye of the sky or flying fillet. Yeah, um, and. They just how, what? What's your favorite way to prepare them, Dustin? You know, we found uh, just taking them in uh, butterfly in the breast, and then mm. a little bit of olive oil, salt and pepper, and a hot grill, uh, mm-hmm. and don't leave them on too long. You know, yeah. that's that's what works the best for us. So, yeah, it, for most of those dark red meats, whether you were talking sharp tails, prairie chickens, woodcock, um, medium rare to rare is is critical. Um, yeah, yes. you, you didn't know we were going to break into a Sandhill Crane discussion, but uh, their their populations are doing very well from from North Dakota down to Texas, and um, you can't hunt them in every state, um, particularly right. Nebraska, where this they're the state bird, if I recall it, correctly. Uh, so I think uh, I think we're like the Sandhill Crane capital of the world or something. Mm-hmm. Um, you cannot hunt them here. We get. We have about 500,000 that move through. And so it's a pretty big tourist attraction. Um, it's really, really neat. And in March, you can, you, there's blinds set up where you can come in and, and watch them roost in the river. Um, but I have also traveled down to the Texas state line and hunted cranes a couple of times. And I agree, they're, they're very good. Um, and it was 
man, it was fun. That was the best trip I've ever been on. So it was very fun. A former coworker of ours who is retired, Dave Nompson. Have you ever heard Dave's phrase about hunting quaint? I don't know if I have. So, so Dave, he, um, he went, I think it was with Jeff Finden, uh, one of the founding members of first president and CEO of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Um, and this is the late eighties. They were in North Dakota in hunting cranes and Dave shot his first crane and it, it came out of the sky, landed and he retrieved it. And he said, when, when you shoot a crane, with all the wings and neck and legs, like they do every acrobatic move coming out of the sky except burst into flames. And he just started giggling. It's like unbelievable. But yeah. the one thing, Dustin, like when you're hunting cranes, what I've been taught is never ever have your bird dog in the field when you're hunting yeah. cranes because that that beak of the crane can actually um, puncture. Um, your, your bird dog, particularly um, around the eyes and face of a dog. Have you, have you ever encountered that issue when you've been crane hunting? You know, I, I don't get my bird dogs out whenever we're, we're crane hunting, but I know a lot of guys that do, and they've all hmm. got those rec specs. No um, kidding. That, that huh. fit their dogs uh, simply for that reason, because, yeah, it can, it can get real dangerous for those dogs if you uh, – uh, if you send them out there unprotected and those crane will, I mean, they're hard to bring down a lot of times when they bring down, you know, you, it's just like any bird. Sometimes you have to dispatch them. And if you, you get up there and they're able, they'll, they'll, you know, try to, they'll, they'll spread their wings and, and have mm -hmm. kind of a defensive display and they, they will come after you, but, uh, mm -hmm. you just got to be willing to protect your dogs and, and have all the equipment you need. I, I don't know too many guys that, that send a dog out without Rex right. back home. Yeah, that's a dangerous situation for a bird dog. Yeah. Uh, well, Michael, I know you weren't expecting a Sandhill crane conversation to break out. Uh, have you ever crane hunted, Michael? I have bought a crane tag one time, but I have never, I've never actually killed a crane. All right. Well, tell us. Uh, we'll we'll transition. You tell us about your. Uh, your background and what you do for the organization. Yes, so I am Colorado, born and raised. Um, went to a small mountain school, Western State in Gunnison. Um, got an ecology degree, to, degree there. And then from there, I got a job with the Forest Service as a wildland firefighter. Um, Kansas was never foreign to me. Uh, I've got my parents, my mom's side of the family uh, is from Kansas, so we've got a family ranch in north central Kansas, northwest Kansas, in the Hill City area. Um, so in my off season from fire, I would come out and live on the ranch and use that as my home base and um, kind of kept an eye out for jobs with Pheasants Forever. I always liked the organization and... Um, opportunity came up to do a lot more of the prescribed fire side of things and i really wanted to start lighting them instead of fighting them so <laughs> that's kind of how i ended up uh, in kansas full time um now i'm working with uh primarily the great plains grassland initiative gpgi in the red mm -hmm. hills region south central southwest kansas so your primary goal is to knock back the encroachment of uh, eastern red cedars, I would guess. Yep, that's correct. I, uh, as you're saying, I work with landowners. I do a lot of tree shaming, um, trying to convince people that cedar trees and other woody encroachment are not ideal for mm -hmm. the grasslands, um, trying to promote a lot of prescribed fire. Some parts of Kansas are really good about fire, other places not so much. The Red Hills is kind of a toss-up. Uh, there's a lot of good fire practitioners and then a lot of people that are pretty against it. So it hmm. makes for a fun job. I get to see a lot of cool country down in here. If you folks want to go back and learn a little bit more about the Great Plains Grass Grassland Initiative, um, I'll point you to podcast uh, episode 122 with um, Tim Griffiths and um, um, NRCS's Dean Crable 
uh, from the state of Kansas talking about why prescribed fire and um, to de uh, detour the encroachment of eastern red cedars is so incredibly important for grasslands and particularly lesser prairie chickens, um, bobwhite quail and pheasants and all sorts of um, wildlife species, including water quality. Um, it's just, it's stunning how much water eastern red cedars soak up. Um, and and in wh where you live in your part of the world, water quantity is becoming an increasingly important issue. Uh, all right, so we're going to go around the horn, talk about um, opening day um, and the forecast for the season ahead in Nebraska, Texas, and Kansas. Before I go there, I want to shout out to Onyx, national sponsor of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Um, download a seven-day risk-free trial of the Onyx app at onyxhunt.com. And then use the code pheasants or quail for 20% off your Onyx membership at onyx.com. And you'll be glad to know that when you buy a membership with Onyx using the codes pheasants or quail, Onyx makes a donation back to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's wildlife habitat mission, leading to better habitat, more wild birds, and more public access for all of us. So thank you to Onyx. All right, let's start with Nebraska. Opening day was this weekend, Saturday, October 29th. Um, Kelsey, were you able to get out and enjoy opening weekend? I did, yeah. Um, I've gotten out quite a bit this fall already, just chasing grouse. Um, I've, I have a an older dog, a 10-year-old, um, short hair, and then I've got a one-year-old short hair. And so I've made it kind of a mission this fall to get the old dog out because who knows, you know, how long that's going to last and then um, get the new pup out, just getting her on contacts, just bird contacts. So mm. we've hit it pretty hard. Um, and so um, Saturday went really well. The dogs, um, you know, the, the dogs did great. Um, so we, we farm and ranch um, south of Hastings, kind of south central Nebraska. And so I have access to private land. Um, we've got our own, you know, homegrown birds. Um, so my, my plan was to hunt our stuff, kind of see how things were looking early, um, and then maybe hit some public stuff. And I, I don't know what it is. I don't know if, you know, I'm cursed with private lands birds, but I cannot hit our homegrown stuff to save my life. I missed three roosters um just right within the first hour and the dogs pointed them i mean it was just my fault like there was nothing <laughs> there were, like sometimes i can you know be like well you know if the dog would have held or something but no i mean it was great and i just missed them um so i so those were the roosters and then um and we kicked up a few hens and stuff and then um I, I was just throwing myself a pity party and went home and I pulled in. I'm not kidding. This has never happened before, but I pull in, park my truck where I always park it um, right in front of the house. And there's a covey of quail that walks right next to my truck about hmm. 10 feet away under. And it um, it goes it, there's probably 12 birds in that covey um, in between the house and the chicken coop. And it, it goes under the tree um, next to our Quonset. I'm like, what in the world? <laughs> no, I mean, what do you even do? <laughs> right. So um, so I chased that one around a little bit. Never, it didn't get a clean shot, you know, just mm. around the, the farm place. Um, and so, so me and the two dogs bummed around for um, a few hours that morning and then ended up going and hitting some public stuff. Um, about an hour before about I was probably there a couple hours and it was a big site and I could tell, I mean, I would say, Oh, there's probably, it's probably 300 acres maybe. Mm. Um, and I could tell, you know, people had been there. I saw tracks, but I never saw a single person that evening. And that was opening weekend, um, uh, or, you know, the opener mm -hmm. on Saturday. Um, and so I walked some stuff that I, that probably wasn't the greatest, but I thought, you know, well, no one else probably walked this. And so, um, so I, 
I we kicked up a couple hens and a rooster, and then um, there was another site close to some crop ground, and my dog went over there. It, like wanted to go. She didn't actually cross the road, and um, I just had the young pup, the one year old, um, this hunt, and there was a bunch of birds that flushed out of the corn. Um, that mm. it was harvested, um, so I could see them, but. Um, then we kind of made a loop around and by the time we got back to that site, it was just right at shooting, um, shooting hours and, uh, the dog, so the, the whole hunt, the dog pointed 15 or 16 birds and eight or eight or nine of them was right after shooting hours. And those were roosters. And so I didn't get (laughs) anything, but it was awesome, um, to see that, Hmm. um, and I mean, it was just incredible. It was, you know, every 30 seconds, the young pup was on point. Um, and so that, I mean, that was, that was a highlight. That was fun. And then yesterday I, I hunted, um, public ground too. And same thing. I just went out, we had some, some kid stuff going on, um, yesterday during the day. And so I went out and I hunted for a couple hours, um, and ended up getting a, a rooster and a quail to complete the slam. So, um, and the same thing I, I hunted, there was one group that was in the field, um, the same time I was, and, um, part of the field was kind of your typical native warm season grass. And then the other part had been burned and I don't know if they sprayed it, but it was, it was definitely just that early successional, just real tough walk in, Hmm. um, sunflowers, kochia, um, tough stuff. And we kicked up a whole bunch of birds in there. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm only five, one, five, one and a half on a good day. And so it was tough walking, you know, I mean, I had stuff hit me in the face and I'm glad it was cooler. Cause I was at least wearing long sleeve shirts. Um, but that's where the birds were definitely. Mm. And, and it would have been tough without dogs too. Um, but you know, the, the other group, they kind of stayed, um, in the warm season grass and I didn't hear any shots there, but I took my fair share of shots and <laughs> came up with some birds. So, um, nice. so yeah, it was, you know, definitely pay attention to the habitat and hunt the tough stuff. Cause that it wasn't easy by any means. Mm-hmm. And I didn't get a ton of clean sh- or, you know, clear shots just with all the weeds, but, um, but that's where the birds were and the covey of quail, um, was a surprise. I, there wasn't a ton of um, thickets around. So when they flushed, I was, I was definitely surprised and they were young too. It was mm. the, the smallest quail I've ever shot. <laughs> it was teeny tiny, but okay. um, so it must've been a really late brood. And you mentioned thickets. You normally find quail connected to brush and thickets when yeah. you're in Nebraska. Yep. Yep, the plums, um, plums yeah. and choke cherries. That's that's generally where you'll find them. And you mentioned you completed your your slam. Yeah. Tell us about the what what that means in Nebraska terminology. Sure. Yeah. So the Upland Slam, um, we worked with the Nebraska Game of Parks Commission uh, five years ago. This is our fifth year uh, to offer the Upland Slam, and so. Um, it's basically just a challenge to hunters to go out and harvest a sharptail grouse, a greater prairie chicken, a bobwhite quail, and ringneck pheasant all in the same hunting season. And if you do that, you get entered into um, a drawing for a lot of prizes. We have monthly prizes for monthly submissions, and then we have the grand prize drawing in January after, or I guess February after season. Um, and uh, and so I think I, I pulled up some numbers here. Um, I, got, I got them from the commission this morning. And so far, um, we've had 222 total bird entries. The oldest participant it has, was 80 so far this mm. year. Um, and the youngest is 15. And we've had 34 bird submissions for first-time harvest. So um, it's just, it's pretty fun uh, yeah. tracking that stuff. And then... We also, last year, we started doing kind of like a dog recognition as part of that. Mm. And so um, if you want to enter your dog, your dog can get a certificate and a little dog tag as well. And so the hunter gets a certificate and a pin um, 
that's it's pretty neat and then then the dog tag too so um if you want to do that but and yeah. if people want to enroll um that's through the nebraska game of parks the, website yes the website um i believe it's outdoor nebraska um dot gov and then slash upland slam you can okay. find it there so it sounds like so you had a pretty good prairie grouse season and things are off to a good start in nebraska i was a little bit nervous based on the drought well um, so yeah i mean i i'm glad you brought that up because i know it's not i mean i've had a great time <laughs> but if you look at social media others have not so okay <laughs> i don't know you know the, it is it is definitely spotty for sure mm. um and where people are used to going. So for a long time, um, probably for, you know, the last 10, eight to 10 years, we've promoted Southwest Nebraska, you know, mm -hmm. Southwest Nebraska, the panhandle um, out West, that's been the place to go for pheasants. Um, it's not so much this year. Um, okay. They got hit hard with the drought. They've had some hail storms. Um, pretty much, and they've had fires, everything that could go wrong has gone wrong. So, um, that, and then, uh, haying and grazing of CRP has been another, another big hit. And so when you, when you have all those happen, you know, one, two, three years in a row, um, it starts to add up. And so, um, you know, again, just manage expectations if you're going to hunt in that part of the world. Um, but I would say, um, kind of north well i would say more like central nebraska and northeast nebraska um hmm. there's been really good reports um more so than i i mean i would say we're probably at you know maybe a, a five-year high in some of those areas wow. um southeast nebraska is another one that it's hit and miss for quail um you know just surveying the staff around the state um you know, there's, there was lots of reports for seeing birds in Southeast, which pheasants are, you know, definitely few and far between, but quail have, are really up, um, hmm. in that area. So, um, you know, if you're going to travel to Southeast, I would, I would expect to find quail and, you know, the occasional rooster, I wouldn't necessarily pick Southeast to go, um, chase pheasants, but they are there. And, um, we had some staff. Uh, that were actually archery deer hunting this last weekend and, and saw quite a few birds too. So they're okay. there. Um, it's just a matter of, you know, hunt the stuff that is going to have water around it. You know, a lot of the wetlands, a lot of the um, rainwater basins um, are, I, I would expect pretty good numbers there. Um, we had such a mild, mild winter. And so, you know, in the areas where we did have rain and it wasn't as impacted as the drought because we had a wild or mild winter um i would expect to find good birds there hmm. yeah you really have to do your research for nebraska this year it's that uh <laughs> right kind of what you're used to is going to be a little bit different than what you encounter because of the drought because of emergency heating and grazing um open fields and waters you mentioned that early on is the walk-in program for nebraska and it's one of the finest walk-in programs if not the best in the country but those acres are really uh predominantly in that southwest corner of the state or they historically right. they have been uh, what's the situation like for those walk-in acres this year with the drought you know, again, it's it's hit or miss. It mainly due to the um, emergency hang and grazing. So mm -hmm. a lot of the OFW sites are on CRP, and so a lot of those landowners had the ability to hay or graze, um, and you know a lot of them did. And so um, that would be, you know, especially in the, those drought areas, I would do some scouting ahead of time. I and I've hunted quite a bit of OFW sites just. Um, and just, you know, looking for grouse and, um, and it's, it, it's one of those things, um, you know, I would hunt fields that looked great and then mm. wouldn't have birds. And then, you know, I hunted a couple fields, um, in the panhandle actually, and it was the most pheasants I've seen in years. Mm. And so it's, um, it, I don't know. It's just a little hit or miss, I guess, but definitely do some scouting and, 
um, manage your expectations as well. Okay. And the other, I guess the other point, um, it's not all doom and, goo, doom and gloom with the haying and grazing, because that does, you know, a lot of those landowners then will come in this next spring and they might spray out some brome or do some interseeding and then it'll actually be better this next year. Um, but you know, it can be, it can be tough when you're trying to find a spot and then all the spots you go to don't have the cover. Right. It can be frustrating in the year right now, but the silver lining is that'll likely reinvigorate growth in, you know, two years from now, that habitat could be spectacular. Right. Um, what's coming up uh, banquets and events-wise in Nebraska? Cause yeah, our... so um, we've got a few um, banquets coming up yet. A lot of our banquets are kind of, you know, January, um, February, March timeframe, but we do have some fall banquets. Um, November 4th, we've got two, um, the Sandhills PF chapter up at Ainsworth. Um, that's way north central Nebraska. And then my local chapter, the Knuckles County chapter in South Central Nebraska is November 4th too. So um, definitely I'll put a plug in for both those and I'll be working the door at Knuckles County. So if you come <laughs> in and say you're from out of state, you came because of this podcast, I could probably hook you up <laughs> with something. Not sure what. But <laughs> it's been a long time. One of the very first chapter banquets I've ever been to was Knuckles County. Nebraska. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it was, I, I think it was probably like 15 years ago. Okay. Um, but yeah, a great banquet, fun community. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. We're really looking forward to it. Um, and then November 26th, we've got corn country and Niobrara Valley. So, um, uh, those are corn country is kind of in the heart of, um, uh, Nebraska, the York area. And then, um, the Niobrara Valley is in Atkinson. And then we have, we've also have, um, youth mentor hunts, uh, the Nebraska chapters. We, we host about 50 chapter or 50, um, youth mentor hunt, youth learn to hunt events. Um, every year we get about 650 kids to go through that program. And, um, the Niobrara Valley or sorry, Nemaha Valley, um, chapter, they have theirs on December 3rd and, um, Knuckles County. Again, we've got ours on December 3rd. So great way to get, uh, youth into the outdoors, um, ages 12 to 15 are welcome. Great. So whether you're looking for a youth mentor hunt, um, or a, a chapter banquet, you can find all of our events, pheasantsforeverevents.org can type in the state that you're looking for and there's a lot um, going on, particularly um, in states where people travel to bird hunt, um, Nebraska, Kansas, Texas, the Dakotas, um, lots of events in conjunction with uh, opening days and early season. So pheasantsforeverevents.org. Let's, let's swing to the south. A great big old state, Texas. Uh, Dustin, your opener was this weekend as well. What do you what'd you hear uh, about opening weekend? You know, the, the reports were about like we expected. Numbers are down some. Uh, South Texas is the big winner again. Uh, if you can use the word big uh, in, in conjunction with the number of birds we're seeing. Uh, mm. We're still on a downward trend, you know, and it's, it's pretty well drought impacted. Uh, you know, habitat loss being a, a huge key to that. But, um, you know, West Texas had, uh, and when I, when I refer to West Texas, all the Texans that are listening to me are going to say, okay, what part of West Texas do you mean? <laughs> um, you know, out between Midland and El Paso is, is generally considered far west. And there, you know, we've got a higher concentration of blue quail out there, uh, scale quail. And um, we're seeing mixed, mixed bags, uh, you know, uh, numbers are real spotty. They're real scattered, uh, a lot like the rain was during the drought. You know, we, mm. if you can find those pockets, you know, you'll you'll find a few more birds. Um, lots of Texas not seeing many birds at all. Just it's just difficult uh, right now. But we were blessed with the late rain uh, that, that came in, and uh, you know, similar to Kelsey, we we actually saw we have evidence of hatches uh, in the rolling plains that uh, birds hatched out in the in mid October. Uh, yeah, we've seen a lot in the, the southern or the western portion of the South Plains. Uh, it was the same case. We're seeing lots of tiny birds that won't. Wow. I mean, 
you won't want to shoot those birds until you know January, February. Um, it just uh, great for hopefully uh, you know having some carryovers. Mm-hmm. Um, but you you get up to the the upper portion of the Panhandle, uh, you'll see a a decent mix of birds. We've actually had a lot of landowners up in that part of the state that have started kind of buying in on uh, you know the the unirrigated corners aren't really producing uh, a crop anymore. Uh, it's just not worth it, and so they're they're actually reverting to putting natives in the ground uh, and working with some of my northern chapters to do that. And um, you know, last year several of those guys had uh, had birds that they hadn't seen in a while. So, and and that's a mix of pheasant and quail. So, hmm. um, looking to see what that uh, what that does as the season goes on, especially gets into December when our pheasant and quail season overlap. Quail season opened in October and runs through the end of February. Pheasant season is just December. Right. Um, and Sandhill Crane overlaps both of them. <laughs> <laughs> so, but no, it's, uh, you know, and, and we typically don't have pheasant uh, much south of Lubbock. There will be some places that will show them. Uh, but if you can just, you know, box out that panhandle, carry it all the way down and make a box out of it, that's that's pretty well what pheasant territory looks like you we do have some over around wichita falls uh drifts a little bit to the east mm. um but again the the numbers are always spotty there uh, but the further south you can go the the better your chances are of, of seeing birds so yeah texas has a reputation as a state without a lot of public land access for the average traveling bird hunter is that yes, is that a true statement or is there mythology to that so it, it is true. Uh, I'm gonna, I'll throw a number at you and you'll say that's a lot of land. But, uh, mm. you know, according to the, the Parks and Wildlife website, you know, we have about a, a million acres that is uh, accessible for hunting. Now, we've got more public land than that, but it's not accessible for hunting. Mm. So a little over a million uh, acres. Um, but you're talking about a state that, uh, you know, is about 172 million acres uh, as it is. Um, the state is... is between 95 and 97% private owned, depending on, mm. on who runs the numbers. Um, so if you want to hunt here, you you either need to own your own place or you need to be willing to build a reputation, a relationship with landowners and, mm. and operators. Um, that's a, that's where I, I've been blessed. We've we've known the landowners and operators around where I grew up, uh, you know, longer than I've been alive. Uh, we still hunt based on relationships that my grandfather uh fostered way back when and uh you know every year we try to talk to those same guys and and just ask for permission or you know remind them a lot of them don't even expect to hear from us but when you you know when when you do that and you build that relationship and you go out and you hunt that property if you take care of it Hmm. you you're more likely to get invited back we've had some instances where folks have come out and done that very thing but then they drive their ranger across a fence or Something mm-hmm. because to them it doesn't look like it's operational, and it is. Uh, and and folks like that usually end up, you know, getting disinvited. So um, that's really where, where you're going to be. But we have a lot of folks that hunt a lot of large ranches, too. Um, you know, a lot of lease hunts and, and whatnot. So, um, you know, we've got every opportunity. But on the public side of things, it's, it's just, it's smaller than a drop in a bucket you know, mm. in, in a state this size. So, um, and not all of it is easily accessible. So we get a, uh, you know, I was listening to Kelsey and she mentioned, if you look at public, it's social media. Yeah. Not everybody's having a good time. That's kind of the way it goes with the, the public access. And it's, um, you know, a million acres is hard to take care of and manicure for everything that we want to hunt. And, mm-hmm. uh, parks and wildlife's trying their, their level best. And, and thankful for partnerships with Quail Forever, NWTF, you know, Mule Deer, Ducks Unlimited, all pitch in to help improve those acres and, and increase acres. Uh, but yeah, that's that's our situation on the public ground side of it. Well, that's it, an easy transition into you know a value proposition of why somebody should get involved and volunteer with Quail Forever, yeah. so we can help improve the public lands. We can add to the public lands as well as work with yeah. landowners to improve habitat and, and access on private lands. Um, what uh, Texas is a state that has a lot of growth uh, potential for quail forever. Where, where are you, um, what communities are you trying to get going for quail forever, Dustin? 
Well, so what I'm looking at this year, we've got a little interest up around Sherman, which is north of uh, the DFW Metroplex, uh, Dallas-Fort mm-hmm. Worth. Um, but I'm looking to start some chapters in Central Texas uh, and, and in the heart of the Rolling Plains uh, with uh, uh, Stephenville, with uh, San Angelo, and Sweetwater uh, are three that, that just kind of jump off the map to me right now. Um, looking at one or two places in the Panhandle, uh, Hereford being one that we're seeing some traction with uh, a partner biologist position that's coming up, and it kind of gives me a good tie-in with existing chapters. Uh, and then going as far west as El Paso. Hmm. Um, you know, obviously I'm open to anything. So if, if we got guys down in, in Hebronville and Brownsville, which is about as far south in Texas as you can go, uh, I'll, I'll make that drive and we'll set up a chapter there. And, uh, you know, we got a lot of open ground in the state with, uh, I think we're running 17 or 18 chapters, uh, 15 that are really solid active. Um, we, we can put a lot more down here. And mm-hmm. I welcome the welcome the challenge to get those started and look forward to any volunteer that wants to jump on and, and help us out. And, um, you know, one of the one of the great ways that we impact so much of that private land is through, you know, our chapters uh, raising money and working on public land that frees us up with some partnerships. Uh, those chapters can also contribute to uh, uh, these biologist positions, which, you know, that's that's what these guys do. And they're great at it. So. Uh, the more chapters, you know, the more hands we have. Is it, you know, is here more hands, uh, many hands make light work, mm-hmm. and that's that's what we're aiming at down here. Plus, so you get to meet a lot of like-minded people that love. We're right, and you you might uh, meet some people that uh, grant access for a place to go chase quail around with your bird dog. Mm-hmm. If men or women that are interested in volunteering um, want to in the state of Texas want to reach out to you and get involved um, what's your email address Dustin D McNabb at quailforever.org um, you can also go to uh, uh, Texas quailforever.org uh, and we've got a lot of contact information there uh, that's real that's state specific so um, and yeah I'm I usually try to get back to you within 24 hours if I can so uh, you look on that website, you'll get my e- my phone number too. So <laughs> I won't throw it out over air, but <laughs> it's out there. <laughs> All right. And that email address, McNab, and that's two Bs on the end. Uh, yes, sir. At yeah. quailforever.org. All right. Yes, let's s- switch it up uh, and head, head back north to the state of Kansas. Um, Michael, all this talk about openers, you still got a couple weeks to wait. Uh, what, what's the season going to be like in the state of Kansas, Michael? Well, uh, I mean, I'm probably going to end up uh, mirroring what Kelsey's saying for the most part. I mean, the Plain states overall have seen a pretty severe drought. Mm-hmm. Um, Kansas was not left out of that. Um, and the drought had a pretty big impact statewide. Um and I'm trying not, I won't try to be too doom and gloom. Uh, overall, I mean, in the past years, Kansas has been about the number three pheasant state and has been the number one quail state. So mm. take what I say with a grain of salt because it's still going to have some great hunting opportunities for people. Um, overall, uh, 86 out of the 105 counties in Kansas were released for um, emergency gra- grazing and haying of CRP land. Uh, so same things mm. there. There's going to be less quality habitat available, um, which means that birds are going to be a little bit more concentrated. Um, that could lead to good initial hunts early in the season as the birds are more concentrated, but there's also those areas are going to get a lot more pressure overall um what an important distinction and you guys can correct me if i'm wrong but so i I get asked this question particularly last year with emergency haying and grazing in the dakotas that is specific to crp land so that it impacts walk-in programs it does not impact state or federally owned wildlife management areas, waterfall production areas, refuges that are open to hunting, because those those are intact habitat that, so if you got a 
favorite WMA in the state of Kansas. That's not going to be hate or grazed. That's correct, right? It's We're only talking about walk-in programs, right? Correct. I mean, there's quite a bit of the public land does have grazing on it, but as far as that emergency grazing goes, um, they're not going to be changing their stocking rates and things to accommodate for the drought. So uh, most of the public land that I'm aware of has a really really solid grazing program mm -hmm. on the ones that do have cattle on um, and keep track of their forage availability and are not going to overgraze them. Um, and, you know, a lot of upland birds can actually do really well with grazing operations if they're done right. So, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, overall that is true. Um, there's there might be some hang here and there, but again, it's they're going to be keeping track of how that's all being managed um, more on the wildlife side of things than it is for the livestock agriculture side of things. Um, and a lot of our walk-in areas do have overlap with CRP. Um, that just how it works. Um, statewide, Kansas has about 1.7 million acres of CRP and about a million acres of walk-in. Um, okay. So that m million acres of walk-in, that's that's what we call WEHA, Walk-In Hunter Access in correct. Kansas. It, again, another tremendous program, but be, um, be aware that ahead of time, it is built on the top of CRP, so it is susceptible to emergency haying and grazing in the time of a drought. And as Kelsey mentioned, um, it's um, you got you got to scout ahead of time, but two years down the road, we get some nice moisture, and that could make for some terrific bird um, opportunities, both from habitat perspective and access perspective and with those wee high acres. Yeah, absolutely. I think down the road, um, once we start to pull out of this drought, I think we'll see those being some of the more productive areas. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, But short term, there's going to be a little bit of a decrease, especially um, in our pheasant numbers uh, in the west. Mm. Um, the western third, I mean, between the severity of the drought and the grazing and haying, um, they did see a decrease there. Um, statewide, a slight decrease, but the most dramatic would be out west. So a little bit of a shift to the central and eastern areas if you're looking for pheasants. Um, and then the quail. Quail overall, they stayed relatively stable. Um, and they, again, the West got hit the hardest. They mm -hmm. did see a little decrease in their brood surveys. Um, but the central and Eastern parts of Kansas got some timely rains at the, just the right time. Um, so those numbers were stable to, and increasing in some cases too. So quail, there shouldn't be too much of an issue as far as getting on them. Pheasants could be a little spotty. Um, I'd look toward maybe the Smoky Hill region and uh, a little bit eastward of there would probably be the best places to find your pheasant and quail numbers. Um, Kansas, as I mentioned early in the conversation, is one of those states that um, has events, banquets connected with the opener. Um, what's coming up for the state of Kansas for, for some of those banquets? Yes, yeah, so coming up here soon this week would be the Wichita chapter on November 3rd. Uh, and then right before opening day on November 11th, we have several up north in Hoxie, Oberlin, and Norton. Um, so some of those areas where we might have some pretty good hunting opportunities and those that are trying to come here for opener might want to stop in at their banquet. Um, and then at the very end of bird season, uh, Phillipsburg on January 28th, another one of our northern chapters. Um, all of those 
are still hosting. Quite a few of our chapters have already had their banquets. Um, Pratt just got their first chapter this year, mm. and we just had our banquet in October, and it was pretty successful. Um, All right, as we round third and head for home um, to close up this episode, uh, I'm going to ask each of uh, three guests, Kelsey, Dustin, and Michael, for kind of one tip, one insider tip if a person's traveling to Nebraska, Texas, or Kansas this season. What's the one tip to help people be successful if they're um, if they're heading in your direction in the Great Plains? We'll start with Kelsey. If somebody is heading to Nebraska, um, you've offered a variety of tips during the conversation, <laughs> probably doing some pre-scouting this year, um, you know, yeah. the tops among them. Anything else you'd throw out? Well, I would, I mean, I would just say, so I'm a, I'm a Husker football fan as well. Um, so it can always be a little bit of a roller coaster and, um, you know, things that worked in the nineties probably aren't going to work today. So you might need to adapt, um, you know, be strategic. And, and again, you know, I talked about my hunt yesterday, hunt the tough stuff, hunt mm. stuff. That's not easy. Um, cause you know, if you just jump out and expect to walk a field, you know, walk a corner and kick up 10 birds, it's probably not going to happen. So, um, you know, hunt, hunt the hard stuff mm. and, um, you know, be willing to walk, be willing to put in the, the time and, and steps for those birds. And then I don't know how many, um, <laughs> how many tips that is, but my last one would be, um, you know, timing's everything. I've walked so many fields where, mm. um, you know, I'll hit it like probably right after they left. And if I never went back, I would be really discouraged because I didn't see anything and I would be all bummed out because, you know, the habitat looks great. There's no birds. Um, but that was my fault because I wasn't there at the right time. Mm. So, um, you know, hot early in the morning, um, that first hour is critical. And then the last six times I have been out, um, either pheasant hunting or grouse hunting, um, it's happened every time, but that last hour they, they fly in. And if you're in the right spot, it works out really well. Um, you know, even, even grouse hunting, I, 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 I had 40 chickens fly over me. Um, it wow. was absolutely incredible. And they're coming in from the crops and they're going to their roost spots, roost spots. So, um, it's, it's up to you to be in that right spot, which I never am, but, um, <laughs> it's really neat to watch them fly in. <laughs> yeah. Th those are great tips. Um, well, when, when you started talking about the university of Nebraska, I thought, I thought you were going to suggest a great time for a non-resident to hunt in Nebraska is during a Husker football game because because that's true too because every every resident is watching the game yeah so if you need public access go during the the football hours and you have a, have yeah. a pretty good success rate yep yep they're either at the game tailgating or watching it so uh dustin how, how does a person be uh, successful in texas well i I'll tell you one of the things that uh, that I think you need to do is uh, go back and listen to the recent podcast where Onyx is talking about uh, scouting for quail. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not a shameless plug for our, our sponsor, but um, you know nowadays that's become a necessary tool. Uh, mm -hmm. You're going to find a lot of really good quail spots that are not very big. You know, and, uh, unless you're able to find out where those landowners are at and find out who those operators are at. You're just not going to have access. So start with a good tool that can put you in contact with the landowners. Um, the other notes I wrote down is have a good set of tires on your rig because it's a long way from the top of the state to the bottom and from east to west. Mm. Uh, and you're going to need to cover some of that ground if you're coming down here to hunt, unless you're just looking uh, to try and hit some of our WMAs. And when that's the case, be patient. Uh, mm. People walk past a lot of ground at some of our more productive WMAs because they think everybody's hit it. It's right there at the front of the gate, you know. Um, yeah, it looks good, but I'm sure that everybody just stopped here and went, and that's not the case. Most of the time, um, that those 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 spots that you think are prime that are just too close to the front, they're not. They're they're good good spots to start. Don't overlook them. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is, especially the further south you go, you need to have heavy snake gear. 
mm-hmm. uh, for you and your dog. We've we've got uh, you know what we call a Texas leg hammer. Uh, the further south you go, those rattlesnakes get they get really really good sized, and they they're not afraid of you. So um, go prepared for for snakes and thorns and anything else that'll poke you or stick you or, uh, or, or you know bite you. Uh, and uh, and have a good set of boots for your dog. Uh, you know, there's a lot of the stuff that, that you hunt, especially down south and way out west. Uh, it's not real conducive for a, a four-legged friend. So um, carry some water with you and protect those those uh, animals. And uh, lastly, I'll leave you with uh, uh, get get your get your knocking knuckles ready. Uh, you know, get don't be afraid to get up there and talk to those landowners because Texas has got a a lot of people are afraid to go knock on a door, but Texas landowners, Texas uh, operators are really mostly a, f- a friendly bunch of folks. Uh, and if you treat them right, you'll, you'll get, you'll have an opportunity to hunt some of that. You're going to get told no some, uh, you know, we, we know that in the fundraiser world, uh, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, you, but you, you can't be told yes, unless you ask. Yeah. Great piece of advice. I, as you're telling, uh, talking about rattlesnakes, I just got back from Montana where uh, you know there's signs at the public access beware of grizzly bears and i had to carry mm. bear spray with i don't know what scares me more rattlesnake or grizzly bear you know <laughs> I, that would be a toss-up even for me i mean i i think a bear i mean obviously you hopefully are able to see that thing from a ways off but i know that's not always no. the case they can yeah. pop up out of nowhere but those snakes are so camouflaged even the yeah. big ones you know we're talking seven foot long you know, oh. as big as your forearm and, you know, head that's, you know, just monster. <laughs> um, and those those things camouflage. And they're not, you know, snakes are just like anything else. Yeah, they get a bad reputation because of the way they look, because of the way they sound when you piss them off. And some of them, they're not necessarily aggressive, but they're not necessarily going to retreat once you get them mad unless you leave them alone for a while. But it doesn't take anything to step too close to one uh, that was trying to get away from you, and now all of a sudden you're in a pickle. I, I've been there once or twice, and my, my nephews and my brothers love to laugh at me about a place that we hunt that is now uh, affectionately called Rattlesnake. Um, I left that field in a hurry, uh, you know, so uh, it's amazing what a, a little uh, uh, Joshua cactus will, will, feels like a rattlesnake when you back up into it when you're trying to get away from one. So, wow. <laughs> yeah, uh, there. Good advice. No matter where you're hunting, you got to be aware of uh, kind of the challenges, the dangers for you and your your dog. Um, yeah. Good advice, uh, Michael. Grizzly bears, rattlesnakes. What do we got to be fearful of in Kansas? <laughs> well, I've yet to see any grizzlies in Kansas. Um, <laughs> but I mean, we're not entirely out of the clear of seeing snakes and during right. the bird season. Um, it's a sunny enough state that if it's a good sunny day, I've seen snakes out in January. Mm. You know, if if they can get some good sun, they're going to. So yeah. always keep that in the back of your mind as well. Um, but, no, I'm going to definitely say that you need to be doing your homework this year. Um, again, there's going to be plenty of birds out there, but it's going to look a lot different than other years if uh, – for those that have hunted it in the past, uh, making sure you're looking for stuff that is that remained intact this last growing season. Um, and if you have an eye for things that have burned, that's that's always my go-to. Um, mm. The pyro in me, I look for areas where there's been fire before, um, especially the quail. They're a firebird. Um, and uh, be ready to put on some miles to to reach those limits. It's not gonna it's not gonna come as easy this year. Right. Well, thank you all for the great tips and information. I mean, I think the moral of the story here is um, we need people to be involved with pheasants forever and quail forever more than most times. You know, with the with the drought having an impact on habitat. That's where we need to get involved um, and create habitat with our partners and with landowners so these birds can um, respond and bounce back as quickly as possible when when uh, we get some precipitation. And, um, there, 
there's certainly birds to to be chased this year in Nebraska and in Kansas and Texas, but it's going to be a little bit different than um, kind of the peak years of you know the last decade. So, um, Kelsey, Dustin, Michael, thank you very much for sharing the information. Please. For the listeners, go to pheasantsforeverevents.org. Lots of banquets um, happening for you to get involved with across these states, and particularly a uh, few that we mentioned coming up here in the next week uh, in conjunction with um, opening weekend or opening week. So um, thank you all for your time today, and uh, thank you all for listening to um, On the Wing Podcast. I'm Bob St. Pierre reminding you, to always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks, folks.